The song we have just sung asked a lot of questions. Did you notice that? But what it did not do is to answer the questions for us. And I wonder if you have considered what answer would you give to the questions that we have sung together? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And physically you might say, no, I wasn't. And yet I hope to show you from God's word that if you are a Christian, the answer to the questions the song has led us to ask are a absolute, strong, and certain affirmative yes. And the passage that answers that question for us is Romans 6, 1 through 14. And the reason why this passage is laid out for us in God's word is to equip us and to help us to think about why Christians fight sin. Why fight sin? Would you open God's word to Romans chapter 6? We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 14. Here's the word of the Lord for us. Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. 
Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and to bless our hearts as we hear it. Let's pray. Father, we need this word and we're grateful that you have revealed it to us. Help us by your spirit. Help me by your spirit to proclaim it with clarity and help all of us by your spirit to hear it with clarity and with the conviction that your spirit alone is able to bring. We ask this for the glory of Christ and for our sanctification. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Christians often struggle how to think about grace, the grace of God, in the battle with sin. Some seek to fight sin on our own strength. Some seek to fight sin as if the fight with sin is what brings us the grace of God, as if fight with sin is what makes us right with God. And that kind of fight with sin is headed in the wrong direction. But others... When they hear the news about the grace of God and the forgiveness that we have in the grace of God, others don't worry much about fighting sin because they assume God's grace will forgive them. So they are lenient with their sin. Some in this second spectrum, in the second camp, might go as far as to think that any talk about fighting sin sounds legalistic. Now, this text addresses the second camp. It addresses those who use the grace of God as an excuse for continuing in sin, as an excuse and an encouragement to continue to live leniently with their sin. And Paul recognizes this dangerous application, especially because in the previous chapter, chapter 5, that we looked at a few weeks ago, he finished chapter uh, 5 with the following language in chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So if you just take that language, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Take it out of the context of what Paul said up up to that moment, And you can see why some people may conclude, well, if sin increases and grace is always stronger and more abundant wherever sin increases, why worry about fighting off sin? Why worry about all the the trouble to keep uh, sin in check? Paul recognizes this wrong application that could be taken from his own words in chapter 5 verse 20. Now, it's true, it is very true that where sin increased, especially due to the coming of the law, grace increased even more. So that grace would conquer sin's reign. That is true. But that does not mean that grace should open the door for continuing in sin. That does not mean that grace opens a door for us to continue to be loose and lenient with our sin. 
So Paul addresses in this chapter, in this first text that we read, and we'll see more of it in the next text next week, Paul addresses how Christians should think about sin in light of the grace of God. How should Christians think about the relationship to sin in light of this amazing news that grace conquers, is stronger than sin? Now, even though this text that we've just read is quite complex, a lot of truth, a lot of stuff is packed into this passage, the structure of the text is quite simple. And the message of the text is super simple. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 present the problem and the answer right away. The immediate answer is given to us at the beginning of verse 2. Then in verses 2 to 10, we see the rationale for the answer. And then in verses 11 through 14, we see the application of the answer. The answer to the problem Paul raised is quick and short. The problem Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And without missing a beat, Paul says immediately, sharply, and straight to the point, by no means. Now in the Greek language, this this is not a polite and soft rejection. This is not the Midwestern niceness. This is the absolutely not kind of response. And and actually some translations translate this phrase by no means with the phrase absolutely not. And you can just hear and see Paul's Paul's, uh, blood rising up to his face. Like how can you even go that route to think about it? It's inconceivable to think that you want to continue to live in sin when you've been gripped by the grace of God. Now, why is it that today many people fall off into the same ditch that Paul recognized uh, that some might be falling off even in his own day? Why is it that many today take the grace of God lightly or misuse it as a cloak for unrighteousness? For some, it happens because they've, been, they've, brought, they've bought into a cheap gospel that promotes a cheap grace, to use the language of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Uh, a cheap grace that offers forgiveness without newness of life, offers comfort without changing one's course of life. But this problem, my friends, is not new. As a matter of fact, the author to the book of Jude tells us the following warning. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Throughout the history of the church, the grace of God has been misunderstood and misused as a cover and an excuse for continuing in sin, and it continues today. So ask yourself, Am I in the danger of thinking about the grace of God in this light fashion, in this superficial way? Am I in in danger of, of looking at my own failures and sins and treating them lightly 
simply because I hold on to the grace of God. Ask yourself, have I dropped the fight with sin in my life because I think I'm under grace now. And therefore, I don't need to fight sin any longer. Well, friends, this trap of, of hanging on to, of embracing a cheap grace is a danger for any one of us. Now, even if you are not in that danger, even if you examine yourself and you think, I actually think I'm, I am intentionally engaging, fighting sin off in my life. If that's you this morning, I hope that this passage will also encourage you and give you a great refresher why you should continue to do so. All Christians need to be refreshed why we must fight sin in our lives and how to do so in light of the grace of God. And Paul's message and argument in this passage could be simply stated in this way. Our fight with sin shows what God's grace has done in us. Our fight with sin shows what God's grace has done in us. Far from being, being an excuse for sin or a, a, a shield to just silence our conscience to put down the fight with sin, the grace of God actually trains us uh, to continue to fight sin in our lives. And because this passage is divided up in this simple way, the problem and the, and the short answer right away, verse 1 and first phrase of verse 2, most of this text is giving us the rationale why we fight sin and then the application why, how to fight it. So the message this morning has two points. Why fight sin? And second, how we fight sin. Why do we fight sin? Paul's answer in verse 2, because we died to sin. Look at verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And he's beginning the first rhetorical question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Here the grace of God is presented not only as the grace that offers us forgiveness of sins, but also delivers us from the reign of sin. And the picture of being delivered from the reign of sin is the picture of dying to sin. This is what happened to us when God's grace overcame sin in our lives. It released us from the clutches of sin's enslavement. And the picture to present that reality is the picture of dying to sin. Now let me speak here first and foremost to anyone here this morning who is not a Christian. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is not true about you. You have not died to sin. You are still dead in sin spiritually, but you have not died to sin. But for those of us who are Christians, this message reminds us that Christian, if you are in Christ, you have already died to sin. Do you realize that when you responded to Christ by faith, 
You wrote your death sentence. Your death sentence to sin. You died to sin. Now, does this mean that we will never be tempted again to sin as Christians? By no means. Uh, some, some Bible teachers may take, or some even just readers of Scripture may take the inference that if we died to sin, that means that we should no longer be lured by sin, or that sin is no longer going to be a temptation for us. But if we read the rest of this passage, we quickly see that such an expectation is both naive and simply not true. Later in the application section, and we'll see it, um, Paul speaks about the need for us to continue to consider ourselves dead to sin. The image of death to sin here is used to communicate not a lack of temptation, nor the lack of needing to fight sin. We are dead to sin, not in the sense that sin is dead in us, because it is not, but in the sense that we are no longer living for sin. We are dead to sin, not in the sense that sin is dead in us, but in the sense that we are no longer living for sin. And that's what it means for us to die to sin. We should no longer want to live our lives for sin. Death to sin, it's an image that shows a radical break and shift that has taken place in our hearts in the realm of what we are living for. And this image is used as a motivation to adjust how we think about our lives and how we live for, or what we live for. So Paul says, asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now this question opens a door to another question. Someone may ask, Wait, when exactly did I die to sin? When did that happen? And Paul asks a second follow-up question as he's assuming that some perhaps may have forgotten or not realized when did that death to sin happen in the believer. And perhaps this is where some of us are this morning. It's like, wait, wait, pastor. I I didn't sign up for this. I, I didn't think that when I received Jesus into my heart, I actually died to sin. I just received Jesus in my heart. Oh, friends, if that's all you did and that's all you were told, I'm afraid you were sold a cheap gospel. When is it that Christians died to sin? Paul asks a second follow-up question in verse 3. And he says, do you not know? I mean, this is language of, are you ignorant? Are you ignorant of the fact that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? How did Christians die to sin? And the answer is, through being united to Jesus in his death. 
And the question is, well, when did that happen? Well, that happened at the beginning of our Christian lives. That happened at the moment you put your faith in Jesus. That happened at the moment of regeneration, when you were united by faith into Christ and the visible manifestation of that union with Christ into Christ was baptism. Here the picture of being baptized into Christ is the initiating experience of the Christian life. Now, baptism is a public declaration of our union to Christ. And the first realm of our unity with Christ is his death. Baptism is a visible display of what has happened in us invisibly, in our hearts, in our minds. We were united with Jesus by faith. And verse 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So the very act of being baptized into Christ, which is what water baptism signifies, uh, should actually tell us that we were buried with Christ into his death. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? The answer to each of these questions should be, if you are in Christ by faith, yes, you were. You may not realize it. That's why Paul is asking, are you ignorant of it? The gospel that unites us to Christ unites us by faith into his death. And this is why Paul can say that Christians have died to sin. We have been baptized into Christ's death. We have participated into his burial. And baptism shows it. Friends, this is why we believe that baptism must be administered only to those who have come to put their faith in Jesus. That's why we do not believe that baptism is merely a sign of the covenant. But that baptism is a sign of our union with Christ by faith. So that those who are baptized into Christ are baptized into his death. And we just don't think that that's possible for babies. That's why we're Baptists. That's why you, we are in a Baptist church. That's why even non-denominational churches that choose not to, to declare what denomination they belong to, a quick question is, do you guys baptize infants? If you don't, you're Baptist. It doesn't matter you call yourself such. <laughs> because it's a big deal. Baptism into Christ is union with Christ into his death. That's why we take baptism seriously here. Uh, we think it's very foolish to do instant baptisms. We also think it's foolish to do superficial baptisms. Where people just sort of get dunked in the water and don't realize what has happened to them. We want to ensure that new believers understand what happens to us when we have placed our faith in Jesus when we're converted, when we're saved, when God's Spirit has regenerated us. Now, we also want to say very clearly that water alone 
that the act of getting in water does not produce that union with Christ. It simply symbolizes it. It simply makes it visible public. It's like the public press release, public declaration that we have been united to Christ, baptized into him, and our our public baptism is a symbol of that. The act of being baptized into Christ should have informed these Christians that they are united with Christ in his death and therefore they've died to sin. Friends, if you've been baptized but know and explain to you what baptism signifies, please come and talk to one of the pastors here. We would love to talk to you about, what, about that conversation and that situation and recognize that your baptism into Christ should have been your public declaration of your death with Jesus. But the purpose of being united to Christ in his death is so that you would actually walk in a newness of life, just as Christ was raised from the dead. And this is the purpose stated for us in verse 4. Paul says in verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, this is a purpose, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in new, in a newness of life. And verses 5 through 10 explains this dynamic of dying with Christ and being raised up with Christ and what that dynamic means for the Christian. Just as Jesus was crucified, our old self was crucified. Just as Jesus destroyed the power of sin and death, so also in us the enslavement to sin would be broken. And so Paul says in verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now the, the Greek word for being set free is the same word that Paul uses earlier in Romans for being justified. This means that the freedom that Paul speaks of here is not freedom from the presence of sin. It's freedom from the condemnation of sin. Freedom from the penalty of sin. I love how one pastor put it beautifully. By being united with him, we are dead to sin's penalty. And thus in Christ, we are free from sin's grasp. It's important that we don't understand, that we don't misunderstand what this freedom from sin is. It is not freedom from the presence of sin. But freedom from sin's penalty and power. The presence of sin remains in the believer. That's why the application in verses 10 and through 14 will be about the ongoing fight with sin. To assume that we can be freed from sin's presence uh, completely now in this lifetime would be a cruel burden. To put on your shoulders. That the Bible does not put. Such a burden will either cause us great discouragement. Or great self-deception. Discouragement because when you fail. And you do. We all of us do. When we fail. It is easy for us to fall into the questioning of our salvation. Struggling with the assurance of our salvation. 
but it can also lead us into self-deception because if we think we, we can pull ourselves by the bootstraps to, to really live a sinless life, we actually can assume that we no longer have to struggle with sin and be, become blind to the ongoing presence of sin in our hearts. The point of this reminder is that we who have died with Christ to sin, we can be encouraged to continue to fight it off because we've been freed from sin's penalty and we have been freed from its power. We have not yet been freed from its presence. So the motivation to fight sin is presented to us here in our death with Christ in his death. But the, but the other motivation is the certainty of the resurrection. The certainty that our lives will be resurrected with Jesus, just as Jesus' life was raised uh, from the grave. Look at verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Christ has guaranteed our new life through his resurrection. But this new life with him is not only referring to life after the grave. It's referring to the new life we live now. Directed no longer in the service of sin, but in the service of God. How do we know that our lives have been raised with Christ? Well, there is the, the new life that begins even now. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus and why his resurrection encourages our fight at the current time with sin. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus proves that death is a conquered enemy and that it can never regain power over Christ. This means the victory of Christ over death is permanent. This proves that his victory over sin is also irreversible. We can take that to the bank. If death can have no more dominion over Christ, be certain that death will have no more dominion over you if you are in Christ. In the same way, if Christ's death to sin was permanent once and for all, his life is now forelived for God. This is what we see in verse 10. For the death he died to for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives for God. In other words, the death of Jesus to sin is also irreversible. Now his life is for God. In a similar way, Christian, we can have confidence that the domain and the dominion of death and sin have been broken in Jesus. And just like in Christ, his new resurrected life was to live it for God, so also those of us who are in Christ and were buried with him and raised with him, now our lives also mimic following the pattern of Jesus' new life as well. We are to live our lives for God. This is why we fight sin, because by our union with Jesus, 
we died to sin, and by our union with Jesus, we were made alive with him to live for God. Well, friends, the resurrection of Jesus gives us both the assurance and the confirmation of the permanency of his victory over sin and death and the assurance of the certainty of the new life with God and for God. So Paul is encouraging us to fight sin because we have died. Paul is encouraging us to fight sin because we have been brought to life. And all of this has happened because of Jesus and in Jesus by faith. So how do we fight sin? What is it, what is it now for us? If this is what has happened to us in the past, how do we fight sin now in the present? This is what Paul moves to and shifts his attention in verses 11 through 14. We'd be reminded of our past death to sin and the new life with Christ based on our union with him. But now that we've been reminded of that, how should it affect us now? All the verbs are summarized in a big principle of verse 11. Keep considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Look at verse 11. So also, in light of all the rationale that has been presented for us in verses 2 to 10, so also in verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, our past dying to sin is the foundation for our current fight with sin, against sin. In the present. In other words, a fight with sin, the death to sin, is not a one time event only. So let me ask you if you are a Christian, do you consider yourself dead to sin? What would that look like? Run with me in your mind the kind of sin battles that you have? What are the lures of sin? What are the temptations of sin that you are fighting on a regular basis? Some of you may say, I don't know. That would not be a good answer. Because that shows perhaps you're not aware of the ways in which sin still tempts you. The ways in which you actually still live your life for unrighteousness as opposed to for righteousness. It's important for us to be aware. What are my ongoing sin battles? And how are we doing in them. One of the questions that the elders, when we meet as elders, we ask each other accountability questions. And one of the accountability questions is, how are you doing in your battle with sin? It's important for us to be aware of that for each of us, ourselves. And it's helpful to be accountable to at least someone else. 
about that battle. So if you are just right now just oblivious where your battle with sin is, that doesn't mean that you have achieved and arrived at that place of being done with sin. It actually may mean that you are actually ignorant and unaware, perhaps self-deceived of areas in which you battle with sin. For me, one of the battles is battling bitterness. I cast that fight off very hard. I'm aware of it. Are you aware of what you're battling with sin? Because if, if you're not aware of that battle, what is that battle front for you, it's going to be very hard for you to consider yourself dead to sin in those moments, in those battles. When temptation knocks on the door of your life, whether it's in your mind, your eyes, your language, your actions, or lack thereof, meaning laziness. Uh, what would it look like for you to respond to those moments? Samuel, you're dead to sin. Don't go there. <laughs> Don't think that thought. Don't languish in that battle. You're dead to sin. You've died with Christ. I was there when he was crucified. I was there when they put him in the tomb. I died with him. He didn't die alone. In his death, by faith, I was there. He died for that sin of bitterness. What would it look like for you to be having those kind of thoughts? Imagine when anger, frustration, dishonesty, self-glory, wanting the spotlight to be on, on you and being hurt and feeling uncomfortable because others don't recognize all the things you have done. What would it look like in those moments to say, Samuel, you've died. Consider yourself dead in this moment. Friends, that's what the battle of considering yourself dead to sin looks like in the moment of facing temptations, frustrations, sins of all kinds and sorts of ways. I don't want to live my life any longer for myself. I want to live it to God. Friends, it's not just that negative considerations being dead to sin. It's a positive. What does it mean like in this moment to live my life for God? To live my life for Jesus. For the one who died, but also for the one who raised. And when he raised, he was not alone. I was there when he rose up from the grave. Practically, Paul encourages us. In verses 12, 13, and 14, not to let the passions of our body reign over us. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The issue is who will reign over you? Who will reign over me? Is it sin? Sin wants to reign over our mortal bodies even though it is a defeated enemy at the cross. It will try to present itself as if it's still coming back and it's still in power. And we must go to the cross of Jesus and be reminded 
He is a defeated enemy. But we only go and claim that in the name of Jesus as we go to the cross. Sin uses our body and the passions of our body to reign over us. Friends, the passions of our body are often in the use of sin. That's why simply doing what you are passionate about is never a good indicator that you're on the right path. Because sin wants to use the passions in your body to do what it wants you to do. So the question is, whose reign are you serving with your passions? Being true to yourself, being true to your passions may lead you straight to hell. May lead you to continue to live the self-deceived life of being under the master of sin. The sin of the, the, the master of sin and rebellion against God. In verses 13 and 14, Paul will challenge us to consider whom are we serving with our bodies? Are we using the members of our body as instruments for unrighteousness? Just consider ways in, in your own life. Whether verbally, thoughts, actions. Uh, in which you are tempted to use your body, the members of your body, uh, for unrighteousness. Consider for a moment how we may use our mouths as instruments of unrighteousness. When we speak untruth, when we slander someone else, uh, when we accuse others in our anger, I mean, just imagine how often we use our lips and tongue as, mem- as a member for unrighteousness. And we do so much damage to one another, even to the ones we love. Instead of using our members as instruments for unrighteousness, Paul says, present them as instruments for righteousness. But particularly before he says that, in verse 13, he actually says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. This is the grace of God. This is what the grace of God has done in us. He has brought us from death to life in Christ. And the amazing part is, is that the death, the, the grace of God has not said to us, you are, you are dead when you kill your sin. No, the, de- the grace of God says you are dead to sin when you put your faith in Jesus. And because you've done that, now you can kill sin. The other way would be to say, uh, the other option, the ungospel way of saying this is, you are you're dead to sin because you kill sin. That is not what this text is saying. You are dead to sin because you have put your faith in Jesus and you have died with him. And because that grace has happened to you, now you can go and kill sin. That's a big difference. Because now my current, ongoing, considering myself dead to sin, is a presentation to God that I have been changed. I have been brought from death to life by the grace of God. Well, friends, this has been the big issue from the very beginning of verse 2. 
Why do we fight sin? Because we died to sin. We died to sin when we put our faith in Jesus, when we were regenerated, when we were united with Christ, when we were baptized into Christ. And now our present life shows that off as we battle sin and fight it in our hearts. Friends, my pursuit of holiness and your pursuit of holiness is an outflow of the fact that we have been brought from death to life by the grace of God. Spiritually, by faith, we died to the old life. We believe that we were there when they crucified him. We believe we were there when they buried him. And we believe we were there when he was raised from the tomb. All of this is by grace. But because that happened, now we have both the power and the motivation to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Well, friends, spiritually, we should consider the doctrine of grace to be an incredible power and motivation for our holiness. And yet it is so sad when people use the doctrines of grace as an excuse for continuing to live in sin. It shows how deeply they have misunderstood what God actually has done for us in Jesus. This is why lack of holiness in our lives can trouble us with assurance of salvation if we recognize that perhaps the ongoing deep-seated struggle with sin in ways that we don't see any signs of God's grace bring us to newness of life, may put a shadow where we, where we saved in the first place. Because our current ongoing life with, uh, battle with sin should be a reflection of what has happened to us in the past. But our confidence for battling sin in the moment is not our current ability, but it is what has happened to us in Jesus. Paul closes on an assuring promise in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under the law but under grace. Friends, just as death has no more dominion over Christ, so also sin will have no more dominion over you because you're under grace. Grace breaks the dominion of sin over us. This is not merely the grace that justifies and forgives, but it's also the grace that sanctifies and purifies and trains us to live in righteousness. Because grace is stronger than sin, God's people show the work of grace in their lives by how they fight sin. We show the work of grace in our lives by how we fight sin. Of how one Bible teacher put it, the death of Christ has not only justifying power, but has also sanctifying power. Friends, how do you view the relationship of sin and God's grace? Lenient? Doze off? Excuse? Laziness? Our fight with sin, according to this passage, shows what God's grace has already done in us. 
Uh, to be under grace does not give us leniency over our sins. It gives us the power, the motivation to fight them. And what's amazing in this passage is that the motivation is not simply Jesus died for my sin. It's that I died to my sin with Jesus. The motivation is not simply Jesus was raised for my sin. The motivation is also I was raised with Jesus to a new life. This is why it's such a big deal that we understand what has happened to us at the moment of the beginning of our Christian experience. And I pray that the grace of God that we have understood and heard would remind us, just as Paul reminded us in this passage, don't you know that you have been buried with him so that just as he was raised by the power of God, we too may walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, help us who have come to know your grace in Jesus Christ. Be refreshed, be encouraged, be challenged, and even convicted to continue to pursue fighting sin in our lives, to display to the world, to one another, the power of your grace to overcome sin. Father, we confess that this battle is not over yet. And until we die physically, the presence of sin continues to remain in this mortal body. But we declare by faith that the dominion of sin, its guilt and power over us, have been broken in Jesus. So enable us by your Spirit to live the life that you have granted us through Jesus Christ, your Son. It is in his name we pray. Amen.